Dear Father, please be with us just now as we look at First and Second Corinthians, and there are a number of difficult, troubling passages and advice that Paul gave in these books that we have a hard time understanding, but please help us as always to look through and to, to see uh, the real meaning and especially about uh, what you are like. Amen. Well, first in Second Corinthians, we spent two weeks on Romans, and we'll actually uh, we'll get through these two books uh, just during this time. And it's amazing as I uh, read through these two books again, how many times we have quoted from these books as we've gone through the Bible study. So we've actually referred to uh, many of the passages in here. So uh, we won't go through all of this, but it is very important as we read through these these uh, letters of Paul to understand a little bit of the context of what was going on at the time, which I want to spend um, some time with you now because I think it will help us understand some of these uh, hard-to-understand things that that Paul said in Corinthians. Um, First of all, now this is kind of theoretical, but we know when you read through the books that Paul made three trips to Corinth, and most likely 1 and 2 Corinthians actually is composed of um, four letters, not two. Um, now, there's, we could spend a long time going through this, but very likely the first letter to the church of Corinth was after Paul had founded the church and there was problem, there was rebellion, we'll go through this. And then the first letter to Corinth was most likely out of 2 Corinthians. And then the second letter to Corinth was most likely what we call 1 Corinthians. And then the other two letters were probably made up of parts of uh, 2 Corinthians. So, um, we could make a, a good case for this about how the letters arrived and there was correspondence back and forth. And in 1 Corinthians, the people asked Paul a bunch of questions for clarifications. And that's where we get all this advice about food offered to idols. And what do we do about uh, baptisms for the dead and uh, about speaking in tongues and, and all of these things that come up in, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but first of all, just a little bit about Corinth. Uh, this was a major uh, trade route. And so... Um, there was a lot of coming and going uh, in the city of Corinth. And you may not know this, but Corinth is actually a byword for sensuality. And there's actually a term to uh, Corinthianize, to refer to this um, uh, sensuality and, and sexuality that was going on in Corinth at this time. It's called the Paris of Antiquity by Barnes. We might choose a different city maybe uh, nowadays to describe this. But anyway, Corinth had quite a reputation and had a number of gods, which, of course, we're still familiar with. Poseidon, the god of the sea. Um, Aphrodite, this was a movie that uh, Uma Thurman was in a number of years ago. But um, anyway, which was the god, not really of romantic love as we might think of it, but more a god of lust, sexuality, uh, was the, the biggest, most popular god at this time. And Venus was the Roman uh, equivalent of that. And so the Temple of Apollo was a very well-known temple in Corinth at this time. And it's not known if this was absolutely true, but at least the rumor rumor of the legend was that there were at least a thousand temple prostitutes that were involved at the uh, uh, Temple of Apollo at this time. And of course, uh, when you went to worship in those days as part of these other uh, religions, part of the religious experience was involved with these uh, temple prostitutes. And uh, this might help give us some idea about why Paul said some of the things he said about women being involved in uh, uh, the worship service at that time. 
And of course, when we read later on, where Paul said, now concerning what you wrote about food offered to idols, there were dozens and dozens, who knows how many gods that the people in Corinth worshipped. And what do you do? You offer the, the, your food to the god, and then it was sold in the meat market. And we talked about this a lot when we went through the book of Daniel, so we won't go through it again, but remember Paul's advice, which was, now you know those gods aren't real. And so to eat food offered to an idol doesn't harm you in any way because that food is not changed by something that's not real anyway. But for some people who are new in the faith, this is very troubling to eat food that's offered to an idol. So not to trouble them for their conscience uh, don't eat that food. If, if you know, they see you, they're with you, don't do something that would be harmful to them. And so he goes on to say, and I would limit my freedom, even though I know there's nothing wrong with eating food that's offered to an idol. But I'm not going to do that. I'll limit my freedom to do that if it would be harmful to someone else. So it's a wonderful passage here, and we can make lots of applications, I think, today. Aren't there things maybe you can think of that... Um, Maybe you personally see absolutely no problem with doing that, but under a certain circumstance in someone else who may have a problem with it, maybe you wouldn't do it. You would limit your freedom so as not to trouble someone who is uh, perhaps weaker in faith, as, as Paul describes it. So anyway, we won't go through that passage, but what I want to describe very quickly in several verses here is the rebellion in Corinth. And that's why it's helpful to know the setting of Corinth, because they were so involved with idolatry. This is a Christian church that's trying to form in the setting of idolatry and all of these other worship of false gods. So here in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, By the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal to all of you, my friends, to agree in what you say, so that there will be no divisions among you. And it becomes very apparent as we read on, there are lots of divisions. Be completely united with only one thought and one purpose. For some people from Chloe's family have told me quite plainly, my friends, that there are quarrels among you. Let me put it this way. Each one of you says something different. One says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Peter. And another, I will follow Christ. Christ has been divided into groups. Was it Paul who died on the cross for you? Were you baptized as Paul's disciples? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you. Oh, yes, except Crispus and Gaius. No one can say then that you are baptized as my disciples. Oh yes, I also baptized Stephanus and his family, but I can't remember whether I baptized anyone else. Now this may seem very, very insignificant, but actually uh, verses like this are quite significant because um, isn't, isn't it thought by many that the Bible was dictated by God? Now, can we read a verse like this and did God inspire Paul word by word to say, well, I can't remember whether I baptized anyone else. I mean, wouldn't the Holy Spirit have a pretty good idea of um, how many Paul people Paul had, uh, had baptized? And so, uh, no, I think uh, I like the idea that these you know, men and women who, who wrote the Bible, they were God's penmen, but not his pen. Okay, so God inspires the people with the thought, and uh, this shouldn't bother us at all. Okay, Paul, Paul makes his point here, I think, quite, uh, quite plainly. And, and there are several other examples of this in Corinthians. And uh, actually, we, we dealt with the subject of inspiration of the Bible when we went through Psalms. 
which is, I think, a natural time to do it because there we have David sometimes praying the worst on his enemies. So anyway, that might be, if you want to go back, you can go to the website and all, they're all there, all the verses that deal with the subject of inspiration. But moving on. In the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, but for right now, friends, I'm completely frustrated by your unspiritual dealings with each other and with God. You're acting like infants in relation to Christ, capable of nothing much more than nursing at the breast. Well, then I'll nurse you since you don't seem capable of anything more. As long as you grab for what makes you feel good or makes you look important, are you really much different than a babe at the breast, content only when everything's going your way? When one of you says, I'm on Paul's side, and another says, I'm for Apollos, aren't you being totally infantile? Okay, this is, these are the people he's writing to. Okay, moving on a little later. I know there are some among you who are so full of themselves, they never listen to anyone, let alone me. They don't think I'll ever show up in person. But I'll be there sooner than you think, God willing, and then we'll see if they're full of anything but hot air. God's way is not a matter of mere talk. It's an empowered life. So how should I prepare to come to you? As a severe disciplinarian who makes you toe the mark or as a good friend and counselor who wants to share heart to heart with you? You decide. Okay, very next verse. I also received a report of scandalous sex within your church family, a kind that wouldn't be tolerated even outside the church. One of your men is sleeping with his stepmother and you're so above it all that it doesn't even faze you. Shouldn't this break your hearts? Shouldn't it bring you to your knees in tears? Shouldn't this person and his conduct be confronted and dealt with? Now, this will help, I think, because we understand what Paul is going to say later in Corinthians. This is what's going on, and it fits the context of what we know about the city of Corinth at this time. Okay, there's so much more. I had a hard time just giving you the essence of what was going on, but in 2 Corinthians 10, and now a personal but most urgent matter. I write in the gentle but firm spirit of Christ, I hear that I'm being painted as cringing and wishy-washy when I'm with you, but harsh and demanding when at a safe distance writing letters. Please don't force me to take a hard line when I'm present with you. Don't think that I'll hesitate a single minute to stand up to those who say I'm an unprincipled opportunist. Then they'll have to eat their words. And what's this talk about me bullying you with my letters? His letters are brawny and potent, but in person he's a weakling and mumbles when he talks. They actually criticized Paul's way of preaching. He said he was weak, writes these forceful letters, but then when he comes, and some versions say he's just uh, contemptible. Such talk won't survive scrutiny. What we write when away, we do when present. We're the exact same people, absent or present, in letter or in person. Okay, there's this dialogue back and forth between Paul and Corinth, and he's, he's about to lose this church. Okay, so he's, he's desperately trying to do things to, uh, to try to bring these people back. Okay, so again, when he says, my dear friends, keep away from the worship of idols, uh, don't you think that was going on by the people in the church of Corinth? And then he said, you know that while you were still heathen, you were led astray in many ways to the worship of lifeless idols. Okay, the early church of Corinth was coming out of pagan idolatry. Okay, it gets even worse. Regarding this next item, then, I'm not at all pleased. I'm getting the picture that when you meet together, it brings out your worst side instead of your best. First, I get this report on your divisiveness, competing with and criticizing each other. I'm reluctant to believe it, but there it is. The best that can be said for it is that the testing process will bring truth into the open and confirm it. 
And then I find that you bring your divisions to worship. You come together and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring in a lot of food from the outside and make pigs of yourselves. Some are left out and go home hungry. Others have to be carried out too drunk to walk. And uh, so the, the observance of the Lord's Supper, people would come to church and uh, get drunk. Okay, very much in parallel again with the idolatrous worship going on in Corinth. And, you know, again, if that was all that had been accustomed to for generations and generations, oh, now you become a Christian, and, well, you bring in a lot of those, those other things. And to be filled with the Spirit uh, in, uh, in the other religions was really, well, you get filled with alcohol, you enjoy the temple prostitutes, and that's a good religious experience. He said, I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? I never would have believed you would stoop to this, and I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. Okay, moving on. Now, what about these people who are baptized for the dead? Okay, they were baptizing for the dead. What do they hope to accomplish? If it is true, as some claim, that the dead are not raised to life, why are those people being baptized for the dead? Do not be fooled. Bad companions ruin good character. Come back to your right senses and stop your sinful ways. I declare to your shame that some of you do not know God. Okay? Now, so they had this correspondence, this back and forth, and it's interesting that probably Paul's letter, or some of these letters were transferred. In 2 Corinthians, we read that Titus delivered this letter and uh, Paul anxiously awaited a response from Corinth, and apparently it was positive. And for he said, For even if that letter of mine made you sad, I'm not sorry I wrote it. I could have been sorry when I saw that it made you sad for a while, but now I'm happy. Not because I made you sad, but because your sadness made you change your ways. So in this correspondence, he was actually successful, it would appear, with the church of Corinth. That sadness was used by God, and so we caused you no harm. For the sadness that is used by God brings a change of heart that leads to salvation, and there is no regret in that. Okay, so apparently it worked. But now let's deal with a couple of the issues. Uh, one was, here in the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul responds to a number of specific issues that they raised. Here's one of them. Now, concerning what you wrote about the gifts from the Holy Spirit, I want you to know the truth about them, my friends. You know that while you were still heathen, you were led astray in many ways to the worship of lifeless idols. Now, let me explain to you a little bit about the gifts of the Spirit. Okay, and he goes on here in, in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 12. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of ministration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. And here, this is the NIV, which has just a, a footnote, or other languages. And there are a number of translations which have other languages. Uh, the Good News Bible, which I usually use, has strange tongues. The word strange is added. All right, but speaking in tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Okay, so he's making this point here about there are many different gifts of the Spirit. All right, but now we go into the famous 1 Corinthians 13. And he says, set your hearts then on the more important gifts. Let me tell you what those more important gifts are. 
Best of all, however, is the following. Best of all is the following. And now we're familiar with this, 1 Corinthians 13.1. I may be able to speak the language of human beings and even of angels, but if I have no love, my speech is no more than a noisy gong or a clanging bell. Okay, so first point is, best of all is this way. All has to be based on love. Okay, now he's going to go clarify some other issues here. Pursue love. And we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 13, because I don't want to, we can't go through Corinthians without talking about that. But let's deal with this issue of speaking in tongues and gifts of the Spirit. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially the gift of speaking what God has revealed, words that bring clarity. When a person speaks in another language, he doesn't speak to people, but to God. No one understands him. His spirit is speaking mysteries. But when a person speaks what God has revealed, he speaks to people to help them grow, to encourage them, and to comfort them. When a person speaks in another language or speaks in tongues, he helps himself grow. But when a person speaks what God has revealed, he helps the church grow. Okay, which does he reveal to be the better thing here? To speak, people understand, benefit others. I wish that all of you could speak in other languages, but especially that you could speak what God has revealed. The person who speaks what God has revealed is more important than the person who speaks in other languages or speaks in tongues. This is true unless he can interpret what he says to help the church grow. Brothers and sisters, it wouldn't do you any good if I came to you speaking in other languages unless I explained revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or doctrine to you. So again, what is the better way to understand? It's not going to help you if I come and speak in, in some tongue that you can't understand. In the same way, since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, Try to excel in them so that you help the church grow. So the person who speaks in another language should pray for an interpretation of what he says. If I pray in another language, my spirit prays, but my mind is not productive. So what does this mean? It means that I will pray with my spirit and I will pray with my mind. Okay, very important, I think, here that if there is a type of worship where the mind is turned off, Paul is saying... What does this mean here? I will not turn my mind off. No, I will pray with my mind. I will sing psalms with my spirit and I will sing psalms with my mind. Otherwise, if you praise God only with your spirit, how can outsiders say amen to your prayer of thanksgiving? They don't know what you're saying. Your prayer of thanksgiving may be very good, but it doesn't help other people grow. I thank God that I speak in other languages more than any of you and... Paul probably spoke many languages. But yet in order to teach others in church, I would rather say five words that could be understood than 10,000 words in another language. And I think Paul is very graciously here trying to point to the ideal. I'd rather say five words that can be understood than 10,000 words in tongues or in another language. If then the whole church meets together and everyone starts speaking in strange tongues... And if some ordinary people or unbelievers come in, won't they say that you are all crazy? But if everyone is proclaiming God's message when some unbelievers or ordinary people come in, they will be convicted, convinced of their sin by what they hear. They will be judged by all they hear. Their secret thoughts will be brought out into the open and they will bow down and worship God, confessing, truly God is here among them. And why will they say that? It's because the words, the understanding, the meaning penetrated the mind and it caused a change of heart. That's the important thing. 
And he goes on to clarify, if someone is going to speak in strange tongues, two or three at the most should speak, one after the other. And someone else must explain what is being said. But if no one is there who can explain, then the one who speaks in strange tongues must be quiet and speak only to himself and to God. So if there was a chaotic sort of situation where many people were uh, speaking in tongues, no one understood what was going on, well, if we're going to follow Paul's advice here, that, that should stop. The gift of proclaiming God's message should be under the speaker's control because God does not want us to be in disorder, but in harmony and in peace. And here in the whole context of Corinthians, can't we imagine, I mean, if they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and all this is going on, that the worship experience was very chaotic and people were not one at a time speaking. Okay, so he's telling them to stop that. So then, my friends, set your heart on proclaiming God's message, but do not forbid the speaking in strange tongues. But notice, everything must be done in a proper and orderly way. And uh, I think Paul is very graciously here trying to tell them, look, speak with understanding. It all has to be based on love, must be done in order. And if you can't understand what you're saying or someone else can't understand, then don't do it at all. Now, these things about uh, the Holy Spirit, what's the, the best verse here in the Bible about what does the Spirit produce? Galatians 5 produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and the last one is self-control. So if um, I think we're ever getting the sense that to be filled with the Spirit is a chaotic, out of control, the mind is being turned off, that would seem to be exactly the opposite of what is being described in the Bible, to be filled by the Spirit. We are more in self-control than at other times. And again, who's the best example always in the Bible of something? It's, it's Jesus. And here we read in Isaiah about Jesus. Here is my servant whom I strengthen, the one I have chosen with whom I am pleased. I have filled him with my spirit. I mean, who is more full of the Holy Spirit than Jesus? Of course, it was God. Um, but our example of be, being filled with the spirit would be Jesus, who talked with people, blessed are the meek, and uh, was anything but uh, appearing to be out of control. Okay, and he never wanted his mind to be turned off. I mean, why didn't he drink the, uh, the strong anesthetic that was offered to him on the cross? Uh, I mean, that was such a critical time. You know, all the, the factors of the great controversy and the temptations that were presented to him at that time, and he wanted his mind, his reason, to be 100% focused and working, all right? Not to be dulled in any way. Okay, so our reason here is extremely important, and I think that's Paul's trying to bring them back uh, to another way of thinking about all of this. Well, now, 1 Corinthians 13. I, I really like here the Phillips translation. And let's read through this slowly, and then I want to go back and, and try to do something here with this chapter. If I speak with the eloquence of men and of angels, but have no love, I become no more than blaring brass or crashing cymbal. If I have the gift of foretelling the future, and hold in my mind not only all human knowledge, but the very secrets of God. And if I also have that absolute faith which can move mountains, but have no love, I amount to nothing at all. Sometimes it's hard even to read through these. And we hear it at weddings, and it gets over-read. Um, but really, line by line, if you go through it, this is an amazing chapter. So we can have faith to move mountains, but if we don't have love, it doesn't amount to anything. 
Now, somehow, I imagine if we don't have love, we're probably not going to have the faith to move mountains. But I think, I think Paul is, is making his point here. If I dispossess of all that I possess, yes, even if I give my own body to be burned, but have no love, I achieve precisely nothing. This love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. It looks for a way of being constructive. It is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. It is not touchy. It does not keep account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it is glad with all good men when truth prevails. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when all else has fallen. For if there are prophecies, they will be fulfilled and done with. If there are tongues, the need for them will disappear. If there is knowledge, it will be swallowed up in truth. For our knowledge is always incomplete, and our prophecy is always incomplete. And when the complete comes, that is the end of the incomplete. When I was a little child, I talked and felt and thought like a little child. Now that I am a man, my childish speech and feelings and thought have no further significance for me. At present, we are men looking at puzzling reflections in a mirror. The time will come when we shall see reality whole and face to face. And what's the reality? Revelation describes we come face to face with God. That's the reality. At present, all I know is a little fraction of the truth. But the time will come when I shall know it as fully as God now knows me. In this life, we have three great lasting qualities, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of them is love. Now, what I just had the idea this week is, of course, we have the most famous verse here in the Bible, God is love. God is love personified. Now, can we go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and everywhere where we read love is this, love is that, love is not this, can we substitute the word God in there? God is love. And I used a different number of different translations for this, but I think it's, it's rather stimulating to go through here. Well, God is patient. Love is patient, of course, but God himself is patient. We'd all agree with that, right? God is kind. God does not sing his own praises. Now, this is kind of an interesting one, but... Um, well, did Jesus ever ask anyone to worship him a single time? Jesus, what was he doing the whole time? Let me tell you about the Father. Um, he's pointing continually to the Father. He didn't come down and uh, you know, proudly say, I am God in human form. I'm God. And he would go to every city and tell them, I'm God. Uh, no, he said, I have come to reveal the Father. Now, what does the Father do? Well, we read on, the Father gives the Son a name higher than any other name. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit doesn't talk about himself. He reveals the truth about Jesus. Uh, he reveals the truth about the Father. So within the Trinity, even, we see this completely other-centered, singing the praises of the other. All right? And, of course, God's for us to praise God, he can't force that out of it. It has to come naturally. God is not touchy. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Uh, God is not rude. God is not selfish, or as another version, version has, God is, or love is not self-seeking. But couldn't we say that about God? And I would say this is so important here, 
that the whole principle of God's kingdom, the whole way the universe is designed to operate is based on the principle of other-centered love. And God himself is the ultimate embodiment of that principle. I mean, God coming in human form, loving others, loving others, to the point of allowing his children to kill him. I mean, God is other-centered. Jesus is the best demonstration. God himself is loving others, loving others. And when we begin to live in this way and become not self-centered, selfish, but other-centered, loving others, then we begin to live in the way that this whole universe is designed to operate. God himself is not selfish. God himself is not self-seeking. He seeks others. Well, love does not keep track of wrongs. Does God keep track of wrongs? Uh, or as another version, God does not store up grievances, or love does not store up grievances. Is this, is this fair to do this? Um, does God keep track of wrongs? Well, he certainly knows all of our wrongs in detail, doesn't he? But what does the Bible reveal? Isn't he just so eager to, let's just put those at the bottom of the sea and let's forget about, about all of that and move on. Maybe, well, let's ask it this way. When we get to heaven, uh, will God have a memory of our wrongs? Do you think he will? Isn't it very often our wrongs and how God has led us out of these things that we've done that bring out the closest kind of experience with God. Do you think he'll give up his omniscience when we're in heaven? God won't know the whole record of this human history and all of the sin and the suffering. Or do you think he'll have a memory of that? Or we go up to Jesus and he has the, the nail scars in his hands and we'll ask him, what's all that about? And uh, can't remember. No, I mean, I think uh, he'll remember in great detail. But the, the wonderful thing about God, of course, is that he doesn't store up grievances and that he, his love for us is not diminished in the slightest by our own wrongs. I think that is the point. And uh, I have to think that all the people that will be in heaven will have to be safe people with a knowledge of all of the wrongs of the other people that are there. And we imagine these combinations of people getting together in heaven like uh, David and Uriah. Okay, will they not remember what happened? Or what about uh, Isaiah and uh, Manasseh? Remember, Manasseh probably sawed Isaiah in half in a hollow log, and Manasseh would appear repented and came back. So how are these encounters going to be? Well, I think there will be a complete knowledge of all of these things, but the people who will be there will be safe with the knowledge of the faults of others. How about this? God never insists on having his own way. Or as another version says, God doesn't force himself on others. Uh, I think this is absolutely true. God is not coercive. Again, Jesus, was he coercive? Did he force people? No, the power, God's power is his love. That is the power, not coercion, and you can't force love anyway. God never stops being patient. God knows no limits to his endurance. God takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. God is the one thing that stands when all else has fallen. So I really think we can go in and we can substitute God who has love personified with love. But now let's move on to a couple of uh, difficult issues here very quickly in Corinthians. What about this one? A man dishonors Christ if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. 
But a woman dishonors her husband if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. And since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, then she should wear a covering. Now, shouldn't we do what the Bible says? Do we do things that the Bible says we should be doing? Shouldn't women, women uh, have a veil or something? Well, we read on a little bit and uh, the same chapter here and he concludes, but if anyone wants to argue about it, all I have to say is that neither we nor the churches of God have any other custom in worship. Okay, it's so important as, as we read through the Bible, we understand the culture and the custom of that time. This was the custom at that time. And so Paul says, yep, you know, that's, that's the way that it, it should be done. Now, what's difficult for us is we read, one way to read the Bible is to read through and say, oh, there's another rule. Let me write that one down. And you come along, oh, there's another one. Let me write that one down. And uh, that's why the Bible should be read as a book that is a reflection of God's character, not as a book where we accumulate, there's another list. And here God at this time is just graciously, okay, this is what people are doing at that time. All right, and so... Uh, that's the way things were at that time. And again, if the women at this time were mainly temple prostitutes um, in the other religions, then, hey, this is, a, this is a kind of a difficult situation. But this is what was done by custom at that time. How about this one? God does not want us to be in disorder, but in harmony and peace. As in all the churches of God's people, the women should keep quiet in the meetings. They are not allowed to speak. As the Jewish law says, there it is again, they must not be in charge. If they want to find out about something, they should ask their husbands at home. It's a disgraceful thing for a woman to speak in a church meeting. Okay, is this true? I mean, the Bible says it right here. You can read it in any version. It's a disgraceful thing for a woman to speak in a church meeting. Um, shouldn't we do what the Bible says? Well, let's uh, give it some other examples here. We read on here, it is good for a man not to marry. Okay. Shouldn't, shouldn't we do what the Bible says? Are people who have gotten married uh, disobeying what the Bible says? Now, this is interesting here in 1 Corinthians 7, as we read on, Paul says about this, I don't know of anything else the Lord said about marriage. All I can do is to give my own advice. And then again, a few verses later, I don't know of anything that the Lord said about people who have never been married, but I will tell you what I think. And then a few verses later, that is my opinion, and I think that I too have God's spirit. Now, this is interesting. This is Paul giving his opinion, and he says three times, I don't have a word from God on this, but I'm going to give you my opinion about what I think about this matter. Now, we should value Paul's opinion, right? I mean, obviously, we should value Paul's opinion, but he's telling us very plainly here, I don't have a direct word on this, but this is how I would put all this together. Now, I think... Um, as we read on a little bit further, I think we can see why this was Paul's opinion. What I mean, my friends, is this. This is the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 7. There is not much time left. And this is true. I mean, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and uh, everything was just about to collapse. And from now on, married people should live as though they were not married. Those who weep as though they were not sad. Those who laugh as though they were not happy. Those who buy as though they did not own what they bought. 
those who deal in material goods as though they were not fully occupied with them. For this world, as it is now, will not last much longer. And I think Paul is just feeling like, uh, you know, I'm so excited about this good news and there are so few people going out and doing what I am doing and how could you do what Paul was doing with a family and with children that I wish some of you would live like I do because there isn't much time left. And remember Jesus' words about the, uh, the fall of Jerusalem, that how difficult it will be for pregnant women, you know, in those days. And I'm sure Paul was just thinking, boy, there isn't much time left and I don't see very many of you uh, just giving all like I am. And I think that just reflects his desire. But now if we put this together with some would use the verse that women should not speak in church as evidence that women should not be uh, ordained uh, ministers. And uh, I just think if that gets plucked out as evidence for that, then anyone who would take that position had better not be married. All right, Because they better follow all of Paul's specific advice to the culture in that time. Now, we see, we go through the Bible, and oftentimes we say about the Old Testament, well, that was done away with at the cross. Now, all of these specific rules in the Old Testament were past that now. Well, what about all these things of Paul? Again, God is all the way along meeting people in their time. So this horrible rule, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and uh, Gandhi was really right. An eye for an eye makes the world blind. All right, but in this time... And we read in uh, Joshua that the people said to Joshua, whoever questions your authority or disobeys any of your orders will be put to death. Their conception of justice at that time. So God meets a very harsh, a very severe people with very harsh rules, okay? Because they needed it at that time. And we have this description in Ezekiel. I did this because they had rejected my commands, broken my laws, profaned the Sabbath, and worshipped the same idols their ancestors had served. Then I gave them laws that are not good and commands that do not bring life. Okay, but it was necessary. Okay, and again, as a parent, you'll give lots of rules and things that do not bring life. Um, you know, don't play in the cat litter box. Okay, this is not going to be a great maturational you know, thing for them in their life, but it's a necessary rule at that time. And God gives all of these rules that are needed at that time. And I think what's so hard for us as we read the Bible is culture changes so fast that we have a hard time identifying with a time when it would be a shameful thing for a woman to speak in church. But just going back 20 years, I mean, 20 years is not a long time, but that's when I was in college. And at that time, it was... Um, the college I went, it was absolutely a no-no to see a movie in a theater. And uh, I was a, a, a resident at that time, and so it was especially bad for me to do that. And uh, But the movie came out uh, about Mozart called Amadeus, and I wanted to go see it. So I wore a hat and a disguise and everything <laughs> and, uh, and went into the theater to, uh, to see this movie about Mozart. Now, that was 20 years ago. Okay, so you can imagine here the changes in human history and how God has to very flexibly meet people at different times. Uh, some of you might have heard uh, Dr. Maxwell talk about um, uh, back in his time, it, in this specific culture and time, it was absolutely forbidden for uh, a woman to wear um, artificials, like in a hat where there were fake flowers or something like that. Um, you know, this was maybe... Uh, well, 60, 70 years ago or so. And so as a boy, uh, he would watch 
the lady's hat in front of him. And they could be real flowers, but they couldn't be fake flowers. That was just that was the way it was thought at that time. So he enjoyed watching the flowers and the hat. And he knew that if they became wilty by the end of the service, she was okay. But if they didn't, she was in trouble because they were probably artificial flowers. So, I mean, imagine God seeing us and how we are some, sometimes just ridiculous in what we sometimes think is right and wrong, but yet he'll meet us at that level. So I think the statement is here again, and for those of you who are Adventists, that summarizes the best of all. We should read the Bible as a book that reveals the character of God, a God who stoops to meet people who believe all kinds of things at any particular time. We read it not to accumulate a list of do's and don'ts, but we read it to build a picture of God. Now, just a couple of things, high points here in uh, 2 Corinthians, which other than 1 Corinthians 13, 2 Corinthians 2 through 4 is really the highlight for me of these two books. But thanks be to God for in union with Christ, we are always led by God as prisoners in Christ's victory procession. Now notice, what are we supposed to do as believers in Christ? God uses us to make the knowledge about Christ spread everywhere like a sweet fragrance. Notice, what is it that is supposed to be the sweet fragrance? A knowledge about Christ, not just as a historical figure, but a knowledge about Christ as none other than God and a knowledge about the character of God that is revealed by Christ. For we are like a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God, which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it is a deadly stench that kills. But for those who are being saved, it is a fragrance that brings life. And it actually can be quite divisive, um, I think, um, a message about what God is like. Um, it, it does have a, a splitting effect. It really does. Some people uh, love a picture of a God who's just like Jesus. Some people are quite offended by a description of making a big deal about God being just like Jesus in character. All right, but we come with this message and some like it, some don't. Okay, this is the judgment in essence. Do you like this? Are you gonna go this direction or not? Okay, but we're to spread this like a sweet fragrance and it will have a dividing effect. Okay, a few verses later. But the people's minds were hardened, talking about the people in the Old Testament. And even to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, a veil covers their minds so that they cannot understand the truth. Okay, veils here are always bad. And this veil can be removed only by believing, trusting in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, then the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, he gives freedom. And all of us have that veil removed. Okay, what's the purpose of us coming to the truth? So that we can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. Okay, this word glory, we've talked about so many times. We don't reflect a physical brightness, an intimidating power. The glory is we could make such a good case for, but the glory of the Lord is his character. We are to reflect God's character. And as the spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him. Okay, there's the evidence for it, in character. And we reflect his glory, his character, even more. This is clarification of that fragrance that goes throughout. We are to live out the life of Christ, to become like him and to reveal what he is like to other people. 
In Leviticus, we went through this in a lot of detail. We have veils here and uh, so much symbolism. We don't have time to go through, but I just want to make one point here. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? Greatest revelation of what God is like in character. And when he died, the veil was ripped from top to bottom. The meaning to me is we see what God is like at that point. Okay, any misunderstanding, any veils of lies and distortions were completely shredded by the life and death of Jesus. We look right in now, and as we talked about in Hebrews on Saturday, we can enter into the most holy place with confidence because of this knowledge of what God is like. A few verses later in, in 2 Corinthians 4, coming again to the gospel, for if the gospel we preach is hidden, it is hidden only from those who are being lost. They do not believe, they don't trust because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. He keeps them from seeing the light shining on them, the light that comes from the good news about the glory, character of Christ. Again, this ties so well with Romans. What did Paul say the good news was? In it, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. The character, the kind of person God is, is revealed. And here, the light that comes from the good news, what's the good news about? It's about the glory of Christ and not that Christ was bright. It's the good news about his character. Okay, Christ who is the exact likeness of God. For it is not ourselves that we preach. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The God who said out of darkness the light shall shine is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts to bring us the knowledge of God's glory, his character. Where do we have a knowledge of God's glory? Where do we have a knowledge of God's character? Right here, shining in the face of Christ. This is how we find out what God is like. And in book after book, as we go through the New Testament, it is the good news is about God's character. Good news is about God. And this is, a, I think, just a great example of it right here. And uh, since uh, most of you weren't able to hear our discussion about Hebrews, it's in so many places. And just to tie in with the opening of Hebrews, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors at many different times, in many different ways, through the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. God made his son responsible for everything. His son is the one through whom God made the universe. His son is the reflection of God's glory. And again, we can't take that to be a physical brightness. He's the reflection of God's character and the exact likeness of God's being. Again, the meaning is if not that if we've seen Jesus' hand, we know what the hand of the Father looks like, but rather is the exact likeness of God's character. Well, so with that heart of the message here, the very end of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, and now, my friends, goodbye, strive for perfection. Okay, that's a turnoff for us, isn't it? Strive for perfection. But let's read it in a few other versions. Aim for perfection or become complete. But I like these others that, that add a lot of flavor to it. Make sure that you improve, right? And in the description of these people in Corinth, they needed to grow up a little bit, didn't they? Or the contemporary English, do better and pay attention to what I've said. Or the new living, change your ways. So again, we do not heal ourselves, all right? All our job is just to come to God, our heavenly physician. We trust him. We keep our appointments. That is our job, trust in God. And God does the healing. But again, what happens if we are changed in character? Well, read those few chapters in 2 Corinthians. We become a powerful witness 
for the heavenly physician. It's not for our own uh, self-benefit. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, please bring each one of us closer and closer through the veils and amazing to think that we may boldly enter into your very presence. But when we come to see that you are just like Jesus, it does become much more desirable to do so. And we ask that you would change us from the inside so that we will begin to more clearly reflect uh, your love and your goodness to others. Amen.